I'm so thankful to be here with you studying the book of Revelation. Heidi, can I ask you to do me a favor? Could you go get me a copy, one of the copies of the book of Revelation? Because I lost my Bible somewhere. I don't know where it is. But this is a great time. Thank you. This is... This is a great time to remind you, we actually have these as gifts for you out front. If you have not received one of these before, please don't start a collection at home, or if you've already got five of them, leave them for other people. But these are actually gifts that we invite you to take as you study along with God's Word with us. Uh, along with that, we actually have uh, a study guide that goes with each and every message that we have here. A number of our small groups will go through this uh, as a way to process and, and kind of dig in deeper. But this is actually a, a tool that you can use on your own, and it's going to help you dig into God's Word in a deeper and richer way. Well, this morning, as we talk about the book of Revelation, I want to address a question that's, that's often floating out there. And the question goes like this. Um, Brian, were you ever a former pro athlete? Because you look like you could have been a former pro athlete. I get that question all the time. Um, I mean, no one has verbalized it, but I'm pretty certain people are like asking it in their minds all the time. Surprisingly, the answer is no. Surprisingly, the answer is no. Um, so, you know, we're in football season now. I don't know if you watch any of the football games that are on. Uh, I love the new, you can do an NFL Plus and compress the games down to 45 minutes. Can you believe a three-hour game compressed down to 45 minutes? Huge amount of time, right? Um, but it, it made me think back to my early start in football. Uh, so when I was in middle school, you know, I was uh, starting sixth grade. I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right around there. Uh, that was when Tom Brady was the quarterback at U of M, right? Good years for the U of M. And, uh, you know, football was kind of in the air, and, and they had to sign up. And they were saying, hey, we, we need people to sign up for the middle school football team. You know, very elite group squad of people. I said, all right, well, I'll sign up. So I show up to the interest meeting, and uh, I knew nothing about football, okay, nothing. I'd never thrown a football in my life. I'd never played a football game. My family didn't grow up watching football. I just thought, sure, why not? So when you're at this interest meeting, you know, you're at the long... Uh, tables in the cafeteria, and you're given this little blank sheet, and they say, uh, pick a position. What's the position you want to try out for? I didn't even know the names of the positions. So I looked to the guy next to me, and I said, hey, what are some good positions? And he goes, I don't know, quarterback, running back? So I wrote down quarterback, <laughs> running back. So my first year in football, I was a quarterback and a running back. And I, I distinctly remember halfway through the season, we were playing against a team that was like I don't know, they were corn-fed or something? Like, they were twice our size. I mean, huge, huge. And in middle school, you can get a big variance in size, right? So this corn-fed team, you know, is up front. I'm the running back. And they have this play where the front linemen, if you don't know anything about football, like I didn't, right, the linemen push the defenders this way and that way, and they create a hole, and you're supposed to run through it. That's the idea, right? So that was the play. I'm back there with the ball. And, uh, you know, they snap the ball, it gets handed to me, and someone pushes a person this way. Someone pushes a person that way. There's my hole. So I start running through the hole, and just about that time, the center enters into the hole, right? And this guy was larger than the hole. And I literally distinctly remember sitting there, like, just standing, I, like, I couldn't move forward, and he just kind of does this thing, you know? Like, like, just flattens me. Absolutely flattens me. That's when I discovered soccer. 
And I became, I became a year-round soccer player. I thought, that's great, right? They can't touch you, right? They can't, you know, they get in trouble if they use their hands or try to tackle you or what. Right? I found out I wasn't a football player. I was extremely outclassed in almost every sense of the word, in, in, in skill and size and knowledge, like everything. I was completely outgunned. I had no chance. It's kind of funny when you're talking about that in situations like, you know, childhood sports and all that. Friends, it's a different thing when you're talking about that in spiritual warfare, spiritual realities, right? Because if, if you think you got a shot, you're signing up for that team. If I knew how that season was going to go, I would have done things totally differently. See, I want to talk about this today because the reality of it is when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to the realities of navigating the spiritual forces in this world, friends, we are incredibly outclassed, incredibly outclassed. And see, the thing that trips us up, right, the thing that, that makes it difficult for us is, is we don't really believe that, right? We want to we pivot and go, well, I, I can just kind of work harder, right? I can just kind of train myself up. I can, I can kind of throw a little bit of money at this. I can, you know, get a support group, whatever. I, I think I can do this. And the first step in actually waging the source spiritual bow that we're going to see in Revelation chapter 12 is starting with this premise. I am way outclassed here. And I need something so much more than whatever it looks like to pull myself up from my own bootstraps. See, today... We're going to talk about spiritual reality. Now, when we talk about Revelation chapter 12, uh, this is kind of an interesting chapter. Revelation treats time differently. Things happen kind of simultaneous. It's not intended to always be in this linear format. It will repeat things. It will cycle back, right? Timelines are a little bit hard to gauge, but this one is pretty clear. This is talking a little bit about a future reality, but it's actually also talking about a past reality and a present reality. And what we're going to see today is that Satan, who is kicked out of heaven, is in his death throes. He's thrashing, and you need to put up a fight. Here's the big premise that we're talking about in Revelation, that the future you see shapes the life that you live. And in fact, this chapter, the present spiritual reality should shape your life this week. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to see Satan in his death throes. And we're going to learn that you need to put up a fight. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read a portion of it first. And then we'll talk about it as we go. Let me encourage you. Pull it up on your smartphone. Grab one of these. If you find mine, you know, you can read mine too somewhere. Revelation chapter 12 verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The word of the Lord, right? 
It's kind of a strange text, isn't it? Well, pause with me right here. Let's, let's do a couple foundational things here as we, as we kind of try to orient to this text. First of all, rem- we need to remind ourselves that Revelation is uh, a lot of, it's a few different types of literature, but a main one is apocalyptic, okay? So it's going to use some strange imagery, some bizarre uh, ways to represent things. And you're going to see this here. We have a woman and a dragon, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But the reason that John, the, the human author of this, and in partnership with the Holy Spirit, as he's communicating these truths, he's using some really, you could think of almost cinematic sort of elements. Because Revelation is, is more than just, oh, I want to kind of learn some fun facts about the future. You're intended to go on a journey. You are intended to be emotionally invested. You are intended to be emotionally affected by the text. And, and as a reminder, the early church, especially the initial seven that we read in the early part of Revelation, it would have been read to most of them. Right? Christianity was derided as a slave's religion in its earliest days because of the makeup of the church was predominantly a poor slave class before Constantine converted and it kind of became a fad, right? So this was read in its entirety, by the way. So people were taken on this, this journey. So what we see here is some very dramatic language to explain a present reality. Well, who's the woman, first of all? Well, there'll be a couple of lines of thinking here. This is either uh, the redeemed Israel, right? Israel who has put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, or it's a little bit broader. It's all of the redeemed people um, who've put their faith and trust in Jesus. I I prefer the second, but it, it could be either. There's this woman who's represented as being in birth pains, and you go, well, that, that's kind of odd. Like, why is there this woman and this birth pains? Scripture talks about how creation is groaning, how, how salvation is waiting to come forth. And, and the people of God have been longing and saying, God, how long? How long till you come and bring justice? How long until your Savior comes? And so it's, it's imagined that this people of God throughout history, pictured as this woman, waiting expectantly for this child to come. Now, you also have a dragon, and you see different horns and diadems and crowns, picturing strength, picturing control, picturing power and influence, not just the things that the dragon does, but influence in society. Well, who's that? Anyone want to take a guess? So it'd be Satan, okay? The dragon is represented as Satan. So here's what this is really saying. This is a a glimpse beyond the veil. It's the first thing we see. You need to see see through the veil. Because what John is painting here is this picture of what's actually happening in the world. The world is just more more than, well, here's this nation. This nation's gone. John sees this thing where there's the people of God and the work of God on one side. And then you see this Satan, this force of evil who is on the other side. And Satan is trying to stop the plans of God. He's trying to stop the work of God. And so as the story paints it, the woman's about to give child, and the dragon is waiting to devour that child. Now, the reason I really want to slow down on this here is you need to see the spiritual reality that's going on here. There is a spiritual reality to this world. And it's really easy to get blinded by bad actors, right? 
or heroes in capes and to actually miss what's going on underneath this. Right? I'm not one of those people, you know, who kind of sees the, the devil in every bush, right? You stub your toe and you're like, Satan, you know? <laughs> that's, not, that, that's not the case. But I tell you, more people, more people are led astray by downplaying it than by overplaying it. What's that quote? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world believe he didn't exist, right? So this idea that we just are blinded to the fact that there is a spiritual value, a spiritual world beyond the material in which we engage, okay? And we just go through life and, you know, good things are good, bad things are bad, and we can miss it. So historically speaking, this moment where the dragon is waiting to devour the child, it's the birth of Jesus, Do you remember what happened during the birth of Jesus? How you had the ruler, the local ruler who was there that said, I want to kill all the children, all the males under a certain age, right? You sit there and you go, well, wait a minute. That was just a really evil person. And that's true. It's pretty horrific, right? It's true. But there was actually a deeper reality going on there. There was an influence of Satan. And and friends, we we can get so fixated on bad actors, well, this person, that it actually blinds us to the fact that there is a spiritual reality at play. And church, when you don't see it, when you don't see it, you don't prepare for it. And, and you need to see it. The reason you need to see it is we are at war. We are at war. The Bible says this, we are not at war with flesh and blood. Your greatest, like, villain in life is not whoever's across the political aisle from you. I didn't hear any gasps at that, right? Okay, your greatest villain in life is not that one person who like really, you know, ramrodded you back, back in the day, right? You, the actual greatest threat in your life is spiritual, right? Because there is a spiritual reality. We are not at war with flesh and blood, Scripture says, but with principalities, with spiritual forces that are all around us. Look at what continues to happen here in this text. Verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That refers to the original fall of Satan and the angels who followed him uh, who were transformed to demons. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So here's a timeline I'm going to go with here in Revelation. There's other opinions on this. But when we talk about the end times, we, we phrase it in about a period of seven years. There's a time where this figure, the Antichrist, is going to make a covenant with Israel. You can rebuild this temple. You can go back to doing what you did previously. The rapture will take place. Those who believe in Jesus will be caught up in the air with him, as Scripture says. And for basically three and a half years, there's going to be this this contention. And at that middle point, Satan is going to break the covenant with God's people, and he's going to start in earnest persecuting, killing making martyrs of any of those who follow after him. That's where we get to stuff like Mark of the Beast, all that. Here's whether, you know, whether you maybe track with all that or this is the first time you're hearing that. Here's kind of the big takeaway I want us to learn from this. For three and a half years, 
the people of God are going to be severely persecuted by these spiritual forces. And God is going to send this, this woman, representing God's people, right, to where? The wilderness, the desert. And you might think that's kind of odd. I mean, obviously we're talking analogies here, okay? It's not like all the people who believe in Jesus are going to be standing like in the Sahara Desert, you know? Like, okay, God, what do we do here, right? But there's, it's teaching us a spiritual reality, right? When we think of wilderness, when we think of, you know, like deserts, we tend to think like, oh, that's the scary place. That's the bad place. Did you know that in your Bible, most of the time, particularly in your New Testament, the wilderness, the deserts, they're a place of power. They're a place of preparation. Or you remember the ministry of Jesus? He, has the, he comes and uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And then he's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, fills him for his ministry, which is going to take approximately three years. But before he starts, the very first thing he does is what? He goes to the wilderness. He goes to the wilderness where, where he's, he's tested, he's tempted. But it's actually the place of preparation, the place of power. And once that was done, he comes out to do his ministry. So God is going to send people, and it may seem like kind of sidelined, right? It may seem like kind of, what on earth am I doing out here? Three and a half years in the wilderness. But friends, you need to see it from God's perspective. Why? Because spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. All right, so this is what we tend to think, right? You get persecuted. You get persecuted. Something's going bad in your life. Right, if you're in a season where you're feeling like, man, I just feel like I'm I'm under attack. Like it seems like everything is against me. Right, and if there's a spiritual reality to that, what most of us do because we don't really think about the spiritual world very much, we pivot to the weapons that we have. Right, the weapons that we can touch and see. Right, this could look like, man, I'm just I'm gonna wake up earlier, friends. But you're just you, no one's gonna out hustle me. Right. It could look like, you know, I'm just going to keep throwing money at this problem. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, you know, get a friend group that's going to be really supportive, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this thing. But friends, spiritual battles, you can't fight them with stuff like this. They actually require spiritual weapons. You know what's so significant about the desert? Right, the desert is actually this, this place of power. And we, we don't think about it that way. We don't think about it in the sense of, hey, this is something, you know, like, it kind of feels a little, I don't know, like light to us. You know, my first gut check, whenever something really is going on that I know is not right, you know what it is? I'll tell you what, it's not prayer. You know what my gut my gut tells me to do whenever all of a sudden things seem out of control is fix it. Find a solution. Use your brain. Be clever, right? Power through it. But see, what God's really saying is there's this place. There's this place that might not seem like it, but it's actually how you fight a spiritual battle. See, friends, we, we need to know this. We need to know how to do this because more of the church, more of the realities in our life, more of our country continues to have this onslaught, 
Friends, I don't know that there's been a time, there has been a time, not in recent history that our country has been so divided, right? There's so many things going on in the world, wars that are happening, I mean, atrocities that are going on, and our gut check is, man, I just, I need to, you know, we need to leverage what we have, and I think that's important. But if you do not see the spiritual reality, then you're going to keep turning to this, and it's never going to win. You know what it looks like to be in this place, this desert, this nourishment? If you're in a season where you are feeling oppressed, attacked, like, like there's this, this struggle that's going on, you know what one of the best things you can do is go to the desert. To actually maybe cut out some things, maybe fast, right? Find a season of prayer, you practice solitude, silence, you sit there and you go, okay, so I am being totally attacked at work, and I'm supposed to go into my back room and just sit there quietly, not eating? What good does that do, right? What good does that do? You've got emails to get to, but friends, you got to see the realities, because spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. It requires this time, this space to sit there and go, man, I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this place where I recognize, you know, I really don't have anything here. But God, I know that you can do what only you can do. Friends, you've you got to recognize spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. And the church, in this, this height of persecution, in this height of this climax coming to the end of time, God literally says, just go hang out there. Why? Because it's a place of nourishment. God is going to be nourishing the church. God is going to be protecting the church. And even against the onslaught, the single best thing the church can do is actually be in that place. Friends, when you are under attack in your own life, the first and best thing you can do is to actually create that space, to be in that place and invite God to do what only he can do. Look at verse 7 with me. Let's see how the text continues. Now, war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore... Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, this is how John is painting this. There's this kind of eternal conflict between God and, and Satan, between this people of God, the redemptive work that God is going to do and this kind of evil influence, this thing that, that causes so much war and division and strife. And, and Satan tried to cut this thing short and stop 
Jesus from coming, stop this whole process of salvation, him going and living a, a perfect sinless life, dying a sacrificial death on the cross, rising from the dead. And when he couldn't stop that, John imagines it like a, a war in heaven. And Satan, the great accuser, is cast out. He's absolutely cast out. And Satan knows that his time is short. And it's like he's thrashing around in these death throes, trying whatever he can to, to cause destruction, to cause mayhem, and see if, if anything can change the calculus on that. Because it is written on the wall what his destiny is. And this is where the stage we are now. Satan knows that he is doomed. Satan knows that God is going to win. And in the meantime, he's trying to cause as much destruction as he can. Now, I do want to mention this thing here. You know, the text calls Satan the great deceiver. It also calls him the one who accuses. By the way, this may not fit your description here, but again, when we talk about spiritual realities, more people have been deceived by spiritual forces that present themselves as good. Remember, Satan appears as an angel of light, right? He is deceptive. He's not just going around, you know, whenever, I don't know, whenever we have a picture of Satan, it's almost Halloween, right? It's always this kind of red thing with horns and like a pitchfork, you know, clearly looking evil with a little swarthy tail, right? That's not what Satan looks like. That's not what Satan appears like. If he was very obviously evil, right, it wouldn't be very tricky, deceptive. No, that's not how Satan does. Satan comes and deceives, promises cajoles, pushes, nudges, right? He's also called the great accuser. This is one of the most fascinating things that we'll see in the text, right? The only other time we see something like this is the book of Job, where Satan appears in kind of this court of heaven, and he's making these accusations, you know, if you do this, Job's going to give up on you. The text says that when Satan was there in heaven, he's constantly accusing. And you know what the sad reality of it is? He's actually probably right with his accusations. He always up there, it's almost like he's, he's sitting there going, hey, did you, uh, did you see what Brian did? Did you see the way he talked to that person? Did you see the way that he didn't talk to that person? God, I know you're righteous. God, I know you're just. Do you see how he fails? Man, he was a jerk to his wife. Accusation, accusation, accusation. You know what it's like almost? It's almost like he's, he's got this, you know, long, long list, this receipt, right? You ever go to a, a CVS and they give you a receipt that's a mile long? What on earth is up with that, right? Save a tree, people. I, I don't need, I don't need, like, what on earth are we even doing here, right? But it's like he's just going down the list. It's going down the list. Hey, this is what he owes. This is what he did. And this is how much it cost. You know, it's like God's in heaven going... That's been paid for. Ah, oh, but God, but God, but what about, what about this? It's been a second, so he sinned again, right? So here's another thing, right? And God goes, it's paid for. It's paid for. Accusation, it's paid for. Accusation, it's paid for. And, and, and finally, this, this great accuser, and friends, you have things to be accused of. You do. I do, right? And God's saying, it's paid for. And, and Satan is, is cast down to earth. Now, it says that as he's 
Part of this is representing today. Part of this will be in the future, right? But as, as he is persecuting people, he comes against the saints and they overcome Satan. How do they do it? What does the text say? They overcome Satan by creating a Facebook group, right? <laughs> by going to social media, right? That's, that's really what does it, right? <laughs> they overcome Satan by trying harder. How do they over, what does the text say? How do they overcome Satan? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You know what it's like? They overcome Satan, not through their own forces, because friends, we're really outclassed. You can't do it on your own. But this idea of the blood of the lamb, this, this moment that says, I'm being accused, I'm being persecuted. But you know what? It's the blood of Jesus that was shed for me, that pays for each one of those things on that receipt. And I'm not trusting in my own good works. I'm not trusting in, you know, how, how many, you know, older people I helped cross the street, how many kids, you know, I gave a lollipop this week, right? It's not good works. It's this recognition, right? By the blood of the Lamb, friends, the only reason I have any standing before God and the only reason you have any standing before God it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. I love that. It was the word of their testimony. Simple as that. In persecution, to simply sit there and say, that's not true. It's not true. You know what's true? You know what I choose to believe is true? You know what I choose to speak as a testimony for people to hear that Jesus loves me, this I know. Their testimony to speak truth where there's deception, where there's accusation. They didn't come together, create a coalition. It wasn't an army. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And friends, that is a whole analogy for how you actually fight a spiritual battle. You need to remind yourselves of the truth of God. You need to remind yourselves of, of the standing, the reason you have any spiritual life in the first place, the incredible power of salvation that we've received through Jesus Christ. And then there's this, this speaking of truth, this recognition, this, this, this word of testimony. Friends, some of you need a word of testimony. You know, I love that it says that Satan was kind of evicted you know what a lot of you need to do? You need to evict the accuser from your life. Friends, he's already been evicted from heaven. He has no standing. His words have no weight. But there's so many times that, that our lives are limited because we sit there, right? Just because he's out of heaven doesn't mean those accusations stop. And it just rings through our heads. You're a failure, right? And we kind of hunch down. I really feel like you're pretty useless, right? If, if we're like ranking where you are in the body of, of Christ, right? You're probably the earlobe, like useless, you know, and maybe decorative at best, right? You ever lived under these accusations, these feelings of inadequacy, these ideas that, man, I, I am such a mess. I'm such a screw up. I mean, God, God, God would never use me. 
man, I, I don't even think I've got something to offer, right? When we talk about, hey, do you want to serve? And I sit there and kind of shrink back and go, oh, wow, I don't know. Like, man, I used to be back in the day, but now I'm just a mess, right? And these accusations, they weigh us down. And, and, and we question we question God. We question his words. And, and we sit there and we get ground down in this spiritual battle. Friends, you need to evict the accuser. You need to evict the accuser. Because it, it's not that we never feel guilt. It's not that we don't feel remorse. But if it's a sorrow that does not lead towards repentance and godliness, then friends, it's not from God. If it's something that keeps you spiraling, if it's this, this weight that keeps you like, from serving, from growing, from feeling this, this sort of joy in relationship with Jesus, it's an accusation. And you need to remind yourself of what is true. This week, you know what maybe that looks like? Maybe you need to create a desert space. Maybe you need to create some space, some margin. I, I think fasting is amazing, by the way, because you know what fasting really is? It's a recognition that what you need is so much more than physical. So much more than physical. That what you actually need is something spiritual. And you need God to break through. If you're in a spiritual battle this week, find space. Create a desert. Create some silence. Create, create a space where you can come before God and say, God, what I need is really you. I need you to do what only you can do. And, and, and here's what, what happens for a lot of us, right? You get to that place and you sit there and you go, oh boy, it's just like a review time of how much I've screwed up, right? <laughs> of how like bad things are or how much I should be afraid of what's going to happen. And, and we sit there and we ruminate on these things, right? And it weighs us down. You know what you can do to maybe evict the accuser? Actually, maybe write down on a piece of paper, all the like accusations that are rolling through your head. Maybe actually write them down like, I'm weak. Maybe I'm overrated. I should be afraid. Man, I've got so much wasted potential in my life. Maybe I've screwed up enough that God's going to put me on the shelf. Now, this is just my list, by the way. You may have different ones. Right? Actually write it out. Write it out. Set it down. And then I want you to practice something. Reminding yourself, overcoming these things by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of testimony. And actually write out. I'm a big fan. I mean actually write it out. There's brain science here, right? Something will happen. Write it out, the things that are true of you. No, I'm a child of God. I am loved more in this moment, as much in this moment as I will ever be. Whether I'm currently winning or losing, because God's love is perfect. God actually does have a good plan for my life. And boy, some of these things may not feel like it, but I'm choosing to see things with eyes of faith. Maybe it's about the relationships that you have. Maybe it's about the, the, the broken places in your past. But actually come and, and write these things out. You know what I want you to do? Actually... Maybe tear out that accusation list. If you have a lighter, maybe light it on fire. I was going to light it on fire, but I thought we're in a building. That's not a good plan, right? But actually, it's an act of faith, friends. 
we're at war. There's a spiritual reality to what goes on in life and what goes on in our lives. And when we recognize it and we see how outclassed we are, it's an opportunity, friends. It's an opportunity. Spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. And and, and coming to this place where we say, God, I, I need you. And I need to remind myself of truth and reject the lies, the deception, and the accusations that so easily, easily entangle us. You know, as the worship team comes forward and we prepare to close, I don't know what your situation is like right now, but friends, let me encourage you to maybe even just this week be a little reflective, be a little reopen to the spiritual realities that are going on in your life. It's a real thing, okay? And it's affecting you probably far more than you realize. But the solution is not to run and hide. The solution is not to to pick up whatever things that we think from self-sufficiency can do us or I'll just try harder or or I'll, you know, I'll make sure to read my Bible every day this week. Those are good things. But friends, we need something so much more. And maybe the best thing you can do when you recognize the spiritual realities is to retreat to the desert and to actually be nourished by God, to remind yourselves of truth. And in that place, friends, you'll find the power to win the battle that's around you. I want us to read this together. In fact, I'll invite you to stand as we read this text. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And friends, let me invite you, take your communion elements out. Bet you thought I forgot, didn't you? Because I want to tie it to this idea. I want to invite you to go ahead and start taking the communion elements right now. And as you're taking them, I want to tie it to this idea, right? That when we talk about this idea of of bread that's broken, of of this, this wine that represents the blood of Jesus, what we're really saying is, I need something from outside of myself. I need to take in the very life of Jesus. So friends, take the communion elements right now and do it in remembrance of Jesus. And whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, Father in heaven, what we're saying to ourselves is that we need something so much more than than our own grit, than our own willpower. Father, we need your life. We need your body. We need your blood. Father, we need your power because we are clearly outmatched here. But God, It doesn't cause us to shy away. It doesn't cause us to fear. In fact, God, it gives us a a strength. It gives us a hope because we know that you are not defeated. God, we do not trust in horses. We don't trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Father, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Be with your people today. Give us strength. Give us power. Nourish us in our own wilderness. And Father, would you fight our battles for us? Remind us of who we are, who you've called us to be. And Father, may we live in that truth, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.